Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this really excellent episode with Tommy Dobbs, we talk a lot about education, higher education, um, some ideas Tommy's trying to incorporate that might uh, allow him to be a more uh, effective sort of human communicator as well as a percussion instructor. Uh, I know you're going to like it. Before we get into that, I just want to take a second to uh, say, make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode so you can hear the uh, secret message from our mastering engineer, Brandon Yoakum. And I want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. Finding the right equipment for you is essential for ease of production and enjoyment of playing in your music making. But needing to rent or buy to try things out can be time-consuming and expensive. If you're looking for a way to learn about new horns or other equipment, check out Houghton Horns. They offer free in-person virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians, which means whether you live in Keller, Texas, or you even live outside the United States, Houghton Horns is able to serve you. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm really excited to be here with Tommy Dobbs. Uh, I've known Tommy for a lot of years. Uh, if I'm pretty sure we met at a party in at Florida State, we were yeah. visiting uh, Jamie, and we were just hanging out, partying at your house, and then you showed up and we're like, hey, we're here, and you don't know who we are. So that's a good introduction, Tommy. Uh, we've just you know bumped into each other. Uh, off and on through mutual friends and experiences. I think PASIC in 2014 or something was a good time too. Um, and then uh, one of the... So Tommy is just doing awesome stuff in his career. Uh, he's got his own podcast and stuff. He, he teaches at the University of Arkansas at Fort Smith. He hosts the Percussion Pedagogy Podcast. And uh, he interviewed me a while back. And this is like kind of a, for me, a, a cool opportunity to be able to kind of talk to him about that conversation that we had and, and sort of flip the, the the conversation and give him a chance to speak on some of these things that he cares deeply about. So uh, I'm excited for this opportunity. Before we get too deep in the conversation, I just want to say, Tommy, thank you so much for your time and being on my show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk. Yeah. Well, let's get started then. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we just start with your backstory, kind of give us a sense of uh, where you got started, what got you into a life in music. I, I know that uh, we were talking before the camera turned on or the microphone turns on. Um, he's got sort of an introductory episode to his own podcast that will cover some of this stuff. And so some of you may have heard some of this stuff already, but I think for those of us that haven't, if you kind of want to take us through the whole thing, that'd be awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so 
I'm from a really small country town in Florida. It's called Williston, or where I'm from, Williston. Um, <laughs> and everyone there is uh, either a peanut farmer or a black Angus cow farmer. Um, in my hometown, at least in my subdivision, if you open up our back door, you see 2,000 acres of black Angus cow farm that would go to like Burger King, McDonald's, that sort of thing. You open up the front door, look left, two to 4,000 acres of peanut farms. Um, so that's kind of where I grew up. Um, I, I was not a farmer. I should go ahead and state that for the record. Um, I have high respect for farmers. Um, I think it's one of the most amazing things you can do because you can see the product and you, you can see it right away. It's amazing. But um, I'm not a farmer. So naturally in my hometown, if you weren't that, you either stayed and got like a um, a job around town or you left and went to college. So I decided to leave. Um, I got started in music in a strange way. Um, my uh, At the time, my um, music minister uh, at the church I was going to said, hey, we need a drummer. And this, I was like fifth grade, maybe sixth grade. And he's like, it's going to be you. And I was like, uh, what are you talking about? And so I tried that out. He said, you're terrible. You're going to get some lessons, um, but you're also going to join band. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, what are you talking about? And at my hometown, you had two choices in middle school. It was either band or PE. And so because I had this conversation with um, the band director, uh, youth minister as well. He said, all right, well, come in. We're going to start you on saxophone, although I want you to play drums. And I was like, what's happening? <laughs> saxophone didn't work out um, because uh, it was terrible and it was hard. No offense, saxophone players. Um, mad respect. But they had an opening uh, in the percussion section, so I auditioned for that. And everything else just kind of lights out from there. Um, the crazy thing, though, is... Uh, I never actually learned how to read music. I should say that uh, straight away until my senior year of high school going into college is when I started learning how to read music. Um, my teacher taught me by rote, the band director there. And when I started playing drum set in church, it was all like, listen to this hymn at home, come in and play it. So I'd make like little notes like, you know, Carter Beaufort beat here and Steve Gadd beat here, like, like stuff like that. And that's how I learned how to play music. So I, I got started that way. Um, and then my good friend Clayton, um, he was a guitarist at the church I went to. He said, uh, you should get some lessons. So we started taking lessons um, together. We would drive uh, about 45 minutes to an hour one way to take lessons and come back. And we did that two or three times a week, which was super nice. The church helped pay for that, um, which was super cool. Still, wasn't learning how to read music. I want to point that out. I don't know why. Um, I, I'm not saying anything <laughs> bad about my teachers, but everything I was learning was by rote. And so I got back um, uh, around my senior year or so. Uh, Clayton said, hey, you can go to school for drum set. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you can, I can major in drum set. At this time, I was like maybe thinking about being a lawyer or something like that. And at the University of North Florida, they had a jazz degree. Um, and it turned out to be a really great jazz school. And I auditioned and somehow got accepted. Um, again, on the audition, I didn't have to sight read, uh, which was also kind of strange. <laughs> they were, I just had to play tunes. And I should state this, that my grandpa got me a drum set when, when the youth minister came and said, hey, Tommy, I want you to play. Um, he got me a drum set and said, you're going to sound like Gene Krupa. Um, and I was like, I don't know what that means. I'm still trying to work that out. Um, but he was always playing this music for me. So I, I, I've heard this music growing up, um, jazz standards growing up, a lot of R&B, um, a lot of Motown. My mom uh, is an incredible gospel singer. Uh, and so I was always listening to sort of the Motown vibe, early jazz, um, swing music. And so when I had to audition, I should have prefaced this, but when I auditioned for my undergrad, um, the tunes were like 
in me. You know, like I, I like they would say, like, take the A train. It's like not a, like I was just could do it. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I'm not saying it was good. I just knew the tunes. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so um, <laughs> somehow I got in to school. And um, uh, when I got to college, um, I realized that I was uh, really, really far behind. Um, in theory class, I didn't know what was going on. Didn't know my scales. I didn't, like I said, I couldn't read music really at this point. And so uh, I started taking private percussion lessons and somehow they allowed me to do that. Uh, my my reasoning was like, hey, I'm really bad. Can I be better? And they let me do that. So I started taking private lessons and then this group called Third Coast Percussion showed up. Um, and Third Coast Percussion is now a Grammy Award winning group. At this time, they were on their very first tour. Um, and they played a concert and did a clinic. Um, my teacher at the time, Shar, was really big into bringing in guest artists. And I was just blown away. Like when, when they came and played this concert, I, I remember every piece they played. I remember every movement. But the most important thing is the smiles and the motion and like the, the, everything they were doing on stage. It's like they were four people together as one. I'd never seen that before, ever. And so I decided that night, to go to Shar, who was my teacher, and say, hey, can I switch? Can I switch? I, I promise you I will catch up as quickly as anyone in the whole world. I have to do this music. And she's like, absolutely. And so I, I re-auditioned on whatever I could play. Um, she let me into the program for a performance degree, which was insane on her part. Um, and at the end, beginning-ish, middle of my sophomore year, I switched, and it was just everything changed from there. Um, Can yeah. I interject here? Oh yes, I so, kind of rambled. No, it's good, man. This is perfect. Uh, what what you just said is that because you couldn't read music, you got to school, and you said I was behind. Right? I realized I was behind. Now, this is a really for me. This is a really interesting conversation because I'm starting to understand. I'm starting to ask the question like, how do we determine that? And as an educator, I'm kind of curious for your perspective too, because you're going to get students, we're all at different levels of growth, right? Yeah. And if we view each person as an individual and in a vacuum, there's no such thing as behind. They're just, our people are where they are. Sure. But when we start to compare it to certain things that somebody should know by a certain amount of time or that somebody, uh, they need to work harder because they don't know this or that. Like from what you described, your education taught you certain things up to, up to that point, but other things it didn't. But if we judge everybody on sort of, uh, you have to know these types of things, we're sort of in essence like sort of giving people that idea that they're behind because they don't know a certain thing, right? Sure. So I'm kind of curious what your perspective on this is after all this time. Like, were you actually behind? As an educator, do you still hold true to this idea that, that you would be behind? Or is this how you felt then and you hold a different viewpoint now? Wow, I've never, I've never thought about that. Um, I would say I don't think that I was behind in the sense of my passion for music. I think that the only reason the teachers, um, and this is just me knowing them now, like my teachers in my high school and an undergrad, I think they saw something, like they saw a spark of interest and like maybe some sort of like drive and motivation sort of thing. Um, and they probably saw a student that just wasn't exposed the right way. You know, like it's not my fault that I didn't know um, who Third Coast Percussion was as a small country person surrounded by farms. You know, it's not my fault that I didn't know, you know, all this stuff. I mean, YouTube wasn't around, you know, we didn't have any of this stuff. Um, not that that's a crutch, you know what I'm saying? So I think they saw it as a moment and how I'm viewing it now. I see it as a person that got lucky 
um, that was exposed to the right amount of things that he could have a musical conversation, whether that's with sticks or w- with my voice. But also, um, I think they just saw a drive. And I think as as an educator now, I've, I've gone through the same situation. I have a student graduating that just graduated um, and he showed up and could not point at a G or a C on that instrument behind me, could not do it. But his determination in the audition to figure out how to read the music, I saw myself in him. Mm-hmm. I was like, this kid, I mean, he showed up in like a three-piece suit to an audition for a small regional university, a three-piece suit. Right. And I was just like, there's something about this kid, you know, and he has turned into he's always he's never been like the most whatever talented. You know, if we want to put those terms on things like he hasn't done competitions or anything like that, but he he has without a doubt worked harder than any student I've ever seen. He's taken verbal abuse like from faculty not being able to match pitch um, in sight singing or not be able to tell you what scale this is. And he's studied and gone through books and books and notebooks and notebooks of paper trying to figure things out. And he's graduating and I would say he could play right alongside me and I would feel safe, you know. But he mm-hmm. showed up just like me and could not, I swear to God, like could not point and say that that is a G or a C. Um, he couldn't tell you what a paradiddle was. He couldn't He couldn't um, hold uh, traditional grip or match grip. Um, he didn't know what four mallets were. And it's because he's from a small country town in the middle of Mansfield, Arkansas. Um, and nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. I should preface that before I get in trouble. Um, but he's been exposed to some really cool things like I was. And now he's, he's not going to go on to be a performer, but it's going to be a part of his life, you know? So I, I don't, I'm kind of rambling at this point. Sorry. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot in there that I would like to unpack too. But yeah. to to circle back around to the question, um, too, because the reason I think it's important to talk about this idea of being behind is that it can't. I can't see any any scenario where it produces a positive mental result to feel like you're behind, right? And so we should address this. We should address this idea of being behind to some degree because it's not true, you know? Like you just have to learn the things that you learn. And this is sort of a problem with a syllabus, right? With something like music is everybody's coming at different, like you described, it's everybody's coming at different places. And I understand the need or, you know, you kind of want to say, well, a freshman should be or maybe around here or a sophomore, junior, senior. Sure. But like, as we know, if music is a lifelong endeavor and maybe not everybody is going to become a high-functioning elite professional musician, how what kind of message do we want to send people about their journey where they're at? You know, and that's like, even this this student that you said is graduating is, is emblematic of that. It didn't matter that he knew nothing. No. You saw he has the... You saw, A, there's no way he would know some of the stuff given where he's been. Yeah. And B, you know that you learned all of those kinds of things. So you know it's totally possible. So I, I just think it's important. I don't know if you have any thoughts on unpacking yeah, I, some of that idea. I do. I think, um, and this might get me in trouble, actually. Uh, I think the, the idea of higher education needs complete reforming. And, uh, and I say that because... Just like in high school, um, when we study in Florida, it's the FCAT or ACTs or like SATs or whatever they have now, all these standardized tests. 
Um, and we base, you know, the money we get from the government or the amount of scholarship money they get or whatever based on these tests that don't actually, in my opinion, just my personal opinion, have any bearing on your future. Like you could fail the math portion, but you could still be a banker if you wanted to later. You just need a little more help. You know, you just need to understand this. Or maybe it was written weird or maybe you read backwards, you know, like or whatever. So it's like, in my opinion, when they come to me at the university level, I think and I, I wasn't around when higher education was formed, but my idea of a college classroom is you show up, there's no grades, there's none of that stuff. We sit and share knowledge back and forth from someone who has experience and shedding light onto people who don't. And my teachers did that to me. I don't ever remember failing except my first semester of lessons. I got a C or a D. But he did that because he knew that my brain would process the information and say, get better. We've taken that idea of like just a little push to get a student to get better. And sometimes we're condemning their future and their mental well-being because of grades and because of like, oh, you can't play con variations where you're a senior. Who gives a crap, you know, about yeah, that? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. who actually cares? Um, and so I could go on this. I've been having this conversation with some of my students that are graduating now. And I'm just like, you, my main thing is this, um, when they leave me, especially this kid that I'm talking about, when they leave me, there's a couple rules that I want them to try to live by. They're their own person, but to try to live by. One is you're never too good to be a jerk, but I usually insert a different word there. Um, and also <laughs> always say yes to experiences. Like without a doubt, say yes to experience something and become better as a person, whether that's like helping someone cross the street, um, getting drunk on a Saturday night and understanding what happens on Sunday. Like I'm not telling my students to go get drunk, but you get what I'm saying. Like go out yeah, and yeah. have experience and live a little bit and you'll be a better person for it. Um, and your music might actually be able to sh be shaped differently if you have those experiences. So um, I do think circling back, um, we need to do better. Um, if everything's based on money, if everything's based on stats and stuff like that, then we need to really think about relabeling what higher education is and call it a business because that's kind of what it is. Um, mm. And inside of it, I'm going to, I'll probably get slapped right across the face for this, but there are, there are, so many amazing parts about my job um, and so many amazing parts about being a university professor. But let's not joke. Anyone that's in there and that's had experience um, knows that like numbers, the administration are looking at numbers. And um, that that's kind of sad, you know, because we have I have some incredible people in my yeah. studio, you know. So anyway, go ahead. No, dude, this is like this does extend, in my opinion, outside of what you're describing. Right. Mm -hmm. For me. And some of the struggles I have perceived in my own, I'm going to tell you this story. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this story because you're involved with my understanding. You had no idea that this existed, but you know, I have, my podcast has been going for a while now, right? And yep. I have watched the numbers and they have sort of gone up and then they come back down and like, there's no trend. It's not necessarily that it's growing consistently, right? So I, in my observation, can feel like things are not happening, right? Because I'm looking mm. at numbers. I'm not focused on the people that might be getting something out of it. I'm focused more on is my program so or is my uh, podcast growing, right? Mm. 
as a sign of I'm doing something right, not am I affecting people's lives, right? Sure. So then I, when you think that way, it gets really easy to get in your own head and be like, nobody cares. Like it gets really easy to feel that way, even though it's not true because it's not growing. You get to, you, you almost like take for granted the people that do care. And it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a thing that of course it's going to happen because I don't regularly interact with people who do care. And then when <laughs> people do send messages and stuff, it's like, oh, that's amazing. I had no idea, right? So yeah. I am operating under some like non-understanding too. But you posted a little bit about a little bit ago that you had hit five thousand downloads, right? And, and how many? Three thousand. But thank you for the five, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So three thousand <laughs> downloads. Like you were yeah. like, and you were stoked. You're you were pumped, right? Yeah. And yeah. like I, sometime next week or the week after that, I'll hit a hundred thousand. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And like when you were stoked about 3,000, I was like, Ryan, you're an idiot, you know? <laughs> like it's not about how many numbers. It's not about like how big something is. Like there are real people on the other side of what's happening. There are pe real people that you're interviewing, real people. Sorry for this rant, but real no, people good. that are digesting what you're doing. And we can't overlook those people because of uh, some sort of numbers because that's how, like in your case, maybe that's how you get funding or maybe that's how you determine this or that like it's easy it's actually easy to overlook all of the people that are there and the lives that are being affected when you start to focus only on numbers i totally agree that's my perspective with yes. that and i have to work really hard to remember that there's real people that are enjoying and learning and 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 getting good stuff from the conversations that are happening on this podcast. People have told me multiple times. It's not that I don't know, it's just that when you're focused on the numbers and growth and ROI, sometimes it yeah. can that can get pushed off to the side. Yeah, with, without a doubt. And uh and you know, I know I don't mean to talk ill of administration, but you know, everyone has these troubles and they really do look at numbers a lot. And they thank us all the time. They say you're doing great work and I do I, I get to work with some incredible artists and educators, but like man, when we really get down to it, um, numbers do push everything. And I don't really understand why we need to be I'm just talking about a university like me. Why we need to have forty thousand students. Like why do we need to have five thousand students? Like six thousand sounds cool. Like what does it what does it matter? Like in if so, it's like if we interviewed these students that like most of them are like first time first generation students just talking about my university. The, the touch that we have on their lives is absolutely incredible. And what you just said, um, I forgot about that. And I always forget about that. Like there's been times where I think I've pushed students out of my studio by accident, not being malicious, just because I drove them to try to succeed like the like other schools, like Eastman or whatever. I tried them to push them, push them that hard. But I have to remember the students going to Eastman have been doing this for a long time and they want to do that. You know, these kids were like, I really enjoyed band in high school and I'm trying to be a band director. And I'm like, no, are you going to go to like UNT? <laughs> you're going to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're gonna, yeah. and so like, um, it's, it's, yeah. And my students reminded me about this and I'll try not to get too, <laughs> too emotional here. But before our last concert, Jamie came down and we premiered one of his pieces and it was incredible. But before we walked out, the students gave me this little plaque and I don't have it. It's in, it's out there. And it's like, we have this little sign. It's like these devil horns of something like goes really well. Like you crushed that, you know? And they did this and they just wrote nice personal messages to me, just telling me thank you and stuff like that. And I was like, God dang, like I saw that. And then like all the worry about missed notes and all the worry about like, oh, they're going to drop a stick and like I'll do something stupid on it went away. And I was like, this is the heart of what we do. Like, not that I need that 
from them, but it reminded me to like take a step back and enjoy my students' last moments on stage, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I agree 100%. Um, numbers really are, yeah, they get in the way. And I'm curious too, one of the things you said earlier that uh, I'd like to circle back around to was more or less just the idea of trying to get people, you know, up to speed or whatever, right? And uh, yeah. and I think what happens is we try to get them to an objective place rather than asking, how do we set them up to reach their maximum potential at some point in their life? Not in the next four years, but mm. what do I need to teach them in the next four years? Like basically, where are they? Where yeah. are they? And I've had to do this with my own playing and what I've experienced is you ha it, almost always we have to back up at the beginning. And we have, there's like some things we've skipped, reading notes, right? Like that's yeah. what you're talking about. You're not saying that you were behind. You're just saying in some ways you needed to step, take a step back and pick up some of the fundamental basics that may not, you you sort of missed. It's not that yeah. you're behind in some sort of thing. You're just, there's gaps in your understanding. Yeah. And when we view it that way, I think it becomes easier to take that step back. It's more about fulfilling and rounding out my understanding so that I can go further in the long run. Now, what's cool is, is I, I, everything you just said is a hundred percent. I wish we could write that down in our faculty handbooks because it's not that. Like, like right now at the university level, they say there's a barrier. Like, you must be able to read this level, must be able to like play these scales, must be able to play a, an etude at this level, missing this many notes. And of course, there's exceptions, and we don't necessarily follow all that. But it's like if we could reevaluate and say, hey. When you come to this university, we're going to sit down and evaluate where you are, reformat um, sort of your thinking, not as, hey, you're a terrible piece of crap because you don't know what a C sharp is. We're going to go, you don't know that. We'll focus on that. When you get to that, we'll go to this step. And this will get you to this level. If you get there earlier, then we'll go further. You know, like that sort of thing. Because um, right now, like if I pulled out the handbook or for auditions even, it's like they must be able to play three scales called at random three octave range. You know, like that sort of thing. Well, Cody, the kid I'm talking about, couldn't do that but he got in, you know? And so, and it, there's just that, yeah, I don't know. I agree with you. I just, I think I'm getting like a little angry about it right now, but <laughs> it's like- uh, I mean, yeah. you can understand it, right? It, to some degree, you can understand that you want to maintain a level of quality, right? If sure. you just let anybody in who, like, you, if I applied to become a student of yours, you know, it would be a disaster, I, right? No, you got it. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> no, maybe, I I, yeah, I'm sure I could learn. But the idea is, is you want to, at some point, you have to sort of try to, yeah. and I don't disagree with that perspective. It's just an acknowledgement that that is an insufficient way to get something started, to get a conversation started, yeah, yeah. so that we can then get students who care, students who are about the relative ability level that we would like, mm -hmm. and then saying, now that they're here... <laughs> Like you said, almost saying like nothing else matters at this point. It's a, it's a balance of understanding, in my opinion, understanding what they need to work on in any given moment and then how, you know, to what degree that they are willing to work on that based on their schedule, based on their, their you know, their will to do it, based on their knowledge, based on a lot of different things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Sorry, man. I, I just wanted to pop that conversation in there real fast. If you want to pick no. back up, I think you were towards the end of your undergrad or something oh, like that, oh, maybe. No. <laughs> you want to go back to the beginning? Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll just like pick up where you left off. Yeah, no worries. So my teachers were very cool to like let me switch. And so I started taking um, 
private percussion lessons, playing in percussion ensemble, playing in band and orchestra for the first time. Uh, my teachers were all orchestral people. Um, they played in the Jacksonville Symphony and and things like that. So I uh, I fell in love with classical music. And specifically, I remember the moment that happened is uh, after I switched about the end of the year, we have a percussion studio class and Shar played Brahms Symphony Number no. 1. And I'd never heard this Brahms name ever except for like the ice cream place you know what i'm saying and so oh, yeah. i was just like hey let's listen to it and so she played it in class um and the opening like <laughs> like the opening first movement even you know just like gong gong like just getting after it and i was like what is that and they're like this timpani you can like they're driving the bus basically they're pushing this whole orchestra and i like i just fell in love with classical music that day and i said okay so i've gone from jazz like hip hop kind of stuff. And then I was like, I want to be third coast percussion. And I'm like, I want to audition for orchestras. Like, holy crap, what's going on? So I started really diving into fundamentals and like all or excerpt training and stuff like that. I, I won some regional auditions uh, my junior year. So I got a chance to play some cool rep with people. And I was like, I want to do this. And so my teacher's like, cool, if you want to do this, here are the schools you need to audition at. And so when I got time to audition, my last two years um, of school there, basically my first two years of private percussion study, I, I decided I wanted to do this, and I was fortunate I went to Rice University. Um, and so I was there, and it was great. Uh, I got a chance to play. Here's what's, cr here's what's crazy. The very first concert, we had to audition for every concert. The very first concert was Brahms 1. Like, the very first concert. And I got a chance, and I won the timpani spot for that. And... Um, I remember that moment, like it, <laughs> I started playing. I was like, this is like where I fell in love with music, you know, like that <laughs> sort of thing. Um, yeah. And it was an incredible experience. The only downside and the reason I didn't stay there is my teacher at the time was going through some medical stuff and we just did not um, get along very well. Um, mm -hmm. But the orchestra, the conductors, everybody, um, and specifically, is it uh, Butler uh, or Barbara? Char yeah, Charlie. Yeah, yeah Barbara uh, and Charlie. They were at every rehearsal and would stand in the balcony, just like like be like oh sharp flat like like get after them and stuff like that. It was super cool, um, and so I remember the faculty was cool, everything was cool. But I ended up calling John Parks at uh, FSU and saying, "Hey, um, are, would it be okay if I transferred here?" And I auditioned there for my master's, and I decided not to go there and go to Rice just to, for that experience. And he said, "Come home, let's go." And so I transferred to Florida State University, um, and. Luckily enough, it was the year they won the Percussive Arts Society's uh, showcase concert. So they were in like, let's play a 50, 60 minute concert mode in front of 6,000 percussionists go. And that's all we did my first semester there. So then I got to experience that when I got to school. Um, and it was just incredible, like absolutely incredible. The musicians were incredible. The family vibe was incredible. And I was like, finally, like... I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And then I got a chance to teach. And that's where my life turned one more time. Um, I got a chance to teach some undergraduates there, um, some private percussion lessons. And I remember, um, I think I mentioned this in, a, in another podcast, but there's this moment with this, um, I think she was a freshman at the time. She was having a hard time with her snare drum roll. Could play circles around everybody. But for some reason, when it came to snare drum rolls, which are hard, um, she was having a hard time releasing them um, in time. And I remember we, she was so stressed out. And I was just like, what did I do when I was stressed out? I go outside. I would like sit at the beach. Like I'm not a beach person, but I would, I would sit there. I would hang out. I would go by a fire or something and like just sit by a fire and relax. So I was like, let's go outside. Um, we went outside, took her snare drum. She started playing, kept encouraging, kept, you know, talking to her. And all of a sudden the role happened. Like, 
and it happened really well. Like, and I was just like, oh my God, we were both like had a moment, you know, and that was it. I was like, I need to teach at the university level. Something about my struggles is helping. Like something about like that I came from nothing, like didn't know anything. Like I'm going back to my mindset, mm-hmm. didn't know what was going on. All that stuff is helping, you know, and uh, I got hooked. I decided to go for my doctorate. Ended up staying at FSU um, for that and got to teach. Um, and then I, I got a chance to audition for this job after my first year of the doctorate. Um, I was coming back from a music festival and this job posted here at uh, UAFS. And um, I auditioned and somehow got the position and I've been here since 2014. So that's kind of my history. That's sick, man. Thank yeah. you for sharing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think will be kind of interesting to talk about um, hopefully it's okay to talk about in light of some yeah. of our earlier conversation, but um, how do you manage, because um, you were saying it's sort of like a, a like a mid-level university, right? Reg- and so, a regional, yeah, liberal yeah. arts school. Yeah, so I didn't want to, yeah, miss, miss <laughs> You're it, fine, but, you're good. Um, you know, I, there are schools with like, you know, FSU and the schools, you know, Eastman and the schools that you you mentioned and stuff like that. And I, I'm sure to some degree that that is a desire of yours to continue uh, growing in your career. But in my opinion, being able to take full advantage of every opportunity wherever you're at is the best way to go. So I'm kind of curious um, what that looks like for you. What kinds of things are you involved in that are requirements? What kinds of things do you do that are not requirements that you feel are important to do? and just kind of what's your overall vibe as a professor? Oh, man, that's great. Uh, you mentioned something, uh, and it reminded me of this quote. We have a master teacher is what I call him. His name is Don Bailey, and I watch him teach often. When I first got here, I'd never taught a class before. Let's just go ahead and say that. They teach you in performance school to teach, or to, to, sorry, to play. That's your job. So I got here, and I'm just telling a little story, and I, I just glued on to this guy named Don Bailey. He's our jazz professor here. He's got 46 years of teaching experience a true like master teacher like uh, and you can see it he's always teaching you don't have to say anything and so he said something very similar he's like bloom where you're planted and he said that my very first month here he was talking to his jazz appreciation class and he was like no matter what your experiences are no matter how much you hate it or how much you love it bloom where you're planted for the time that you're planted there and i was like yeah you know, like, because like you said, like everyone's dream when they go and try to be a university professor is like, I'm going to get the Eastman gig. Like, I'm going to get the Indian. And you're, not everyone's meant for that. That's why there's only been two teachers at Eastman, you know, like, yeah. because that's just how it is. And so as far as things here, I will say I am slowly over the seven, last seven years coming to the understanding that of what I just said, that not every student needs to be a performance major. Not every student needs to go to FSU or Eastman. And I don't need to push them into the dirt to make that happen because that's not where their life was before they met me. And if their life is going to be like that after they leave me, they have to want it. Not me and not for the numbers, not for the reputation to say, I got two students in the floor state, eat it. You know, who gives a crap? Like who actually cares? That has taken me at least five years to understand. Um, and so it's 
I'm slowly understanding that as far as activities and stuff, one thing that the students have really uh, glued to here is the percussion ensemble. And it, that's cool to me because that changed my life. That was one of the turning points in my career when Third Coast came. So to get a chance to play that music with them and see them super excited, just as excited they would be for an orchestra concert or a band concert and even more, that's been really cool. So we do a lot of commissioned works. Um, we actually commissioned Jamie Whitmarsh a bunch. And when, um, during a time, and I like to say this about my students, during a time during the pandemic when everyone said have 15 backup plans, that students are going to be emotionally wrecked, that students are not going to show up, that teachers are going to be burnt out and blah, 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 blah. Yes, all that happened. But during that pandemic, my students decided as a family unit to have two huge experiences. And here's one Here's one of them. First, um, in the fall, we didn't do a concert because it was unsafe. Um, and so we decided to record um, 40 minutes of music and release it as an album at the same time finish the edits on our first album that we did the previous so this summer hopefully in august the students have come together we will release two albums at a small regional university during a pandemic um and these students did it you know what i mean it's not like I'm saying this like, oh, yeah, look at us. But it's like they decided. I said, here's some options we can do. We can do this. We can do that. They're like, we're going to record an album. And I was like, yeah, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, let's do it. And they did it. These these freshmen, I have three incoming freshmen. They're 17 years old. In two months of being in school, they are on an album and playing in the 90%, 95% range. Like, what the crap? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that experience I didn't have until – until my master's or doctorate, you know, and they're getting it right away. Then they were like, we need more, give us, like, the, I could feel the vibe, you know? And as for me, when they say that, uh, I usually, like, overload it. <laughs> and so I tried to hone it in, but it still got overloaded. Jamie was supposed to write a piece for us that was three minutes long and, like, a concert ender. Well, then it turned into 10 movements, 60 minutes long, <laughs> and just in normal Jamie fashion. You Jamie's know, the, he's the worst about that. <laughs> I have a yes. story about this after we're done, but he's oh, he's yeah. amazing. I love Jamie, but he does not listen to. Although, <laughs> no. never mind, never mind. Go ahead. No, Go ahead. no, you're good. So, in normal <laughs> Jamie fashion, it went from three minutes to sixty straight minutes of music. I've never coached a piece that long, um, and most of us, unless you play an orchestra, will never play a piece that long. There's very few sixty-minute percussion ensemble pieces out there, and again, at a small liberal arts school, they got a chance to do that. And they destroyed it. Like, yes, yeah, some things happened. We had a chime out, like shoot across the stage on, on the last movement and stuff like that. But man, that was an experience I'll never forget. Like that, uh, it would just happen a week ago. And I still think about it. And while we did that in normal Jamie fashion, and you, you with me too, we had 10 cameras running on stage, eight <laughs> microphones running on stage, a house camera, another house camera, and live stream. And we're going to put together for these students a world premiere from both Saturday night and Sunday night. That's all of them. Like if a grandma wants to watch just Elijah, they can just go and watch Elijah, you know, like that sort of thing. And so that's kind of what we've been up to. And I would say um, every year that I've been here, the the students have, I, I, it started with me pushing them because I'd show up and I'm like, here's John Cage, you know, here's some composers that are going to freak you out. They're like, what are you talking about? And then that turns slowly into like, I want to do this piece. I want to do this piece. And so that's kind of the two things. Did that kind of answer the yeah, question? Yeah, of course. Cool. My story about Jamie is... Yeah, I get it. He wrote me the piece that I recorded on my CD, the one that you used. 
Uh, and the very he wrote like all of it except for the probably the last three minutes or four or so of the last movement, and it was supposed to be a cadenza and then just finish it. And I was like, Hey, Jamie, all you got to do is write this cadenza and then just just finish it strong. We don't have to go crazy. This piece is already almost Nuts. impossible to play. <laughs> yeah, um, just like just chill out. And then he wrote like the ending that exists, which is very difficult. And I was like, this is not what I asked for. But he always rebuttals with a very true statement, which was he offered me the chance to say, hey, how do you feel about this? And I was like, it's fine. I'll play it. So I'm culpable in the creation <laughs> of this, I suppose. But I yeah, understand. no, he's, uh, yeah, he's like, he'll do that, you know? Like, I, I think oh, it's yeah. a great, I, I mean, speaking about Jamie for just a second, because we obviously both know him. I just love that there's that that extra intensity, you know, that extra... Like, I'm going to go for it because that's what I want to do, you know? Not yeah, because, no. I just think it's awesome. Um, so when you're teaching and you're working with these students, you talked about some of, you know, you pushed them and then it sort of fell into a rhythm once you sort of let go, so to speak, right? Sure. Uh, I guess the question I would have is, what is that like for you? to then trust if you let go that progress will still happen. It's terrifying. Like absolutely. Are you asking me how I feel about it? Yeah. Yeah, I uh I'm slowly when I say that like I am slowly releasing the reins on a lot of things and I usually do it by it seems to happen by year. So like by their first year like I'm showing them how to send emails. I'm showing them how to respond, how to dress. Like we dress up for lessons so they get comfortable dressing up, like how to, you know, be a person as a freshman in college because I didn't have that, you know. Um, but by their junior year, um, I don't check, like, I don't check all their emails, but I don't, like, I don't say anything to them unless it's really bad or, um, you know, I'll just check them every now and then. But, you know, musically um, and as a, you know, I guess some sort of parental figure, it's terrifying um, because you think that you've said the right things, but are you demonstrating the right things all the time? And I've realized that my students do um, every now and then copy the things that I do, which is like really humbling. But sometimes it's the stuff I don't want them to copy. Like when I joke around with them and say certain like, you know, funny jokes or something, they'll repeat that, but maybe like when they're talking to our department head. And I'm like, whoa, hold on now. Like, that's like, that's me joking with you. I've known you since junior year of high school. Like, we're, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. not saying cuss words or anything like that, but just like, you know, pushing it. They should be yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, that sort of thing. But also, should it be um, to a certain extent too? Uh, but that's another story. So, um, it's terrifying. Yeah. I, but I think that I'm slowly getting used to it because they need to, they need to fall. I, I fell way more than I've ever succeeded, like hundred times, thousand times more. And I think it's because my teachers allowed it. They, they knew what I was doing in undergrad. They knew what I was doing in my master's, but they let me fail, make a fool of myself um, or not. Maybe it worked. Um, and I think I'm slowly, slowly trying to get there um, to where I can do that. Yeah, the reason I asked this question is because it's, it's an issue of control, right? It's an issue of believing that, there, I think to a greater extent, we're obviously as educators, we are the authority, right? What we know is what the students, but there is a level of what does the student want? And mm. also, 
are they ready for that? Like, are they, re- are they a person that can do this? Are they a person that could sustainably do what we're asking them to do or what we think that they should do? And, you know, I think when we get into the mindset that we, we're not that we're right, but that we can fix like all problems, you know what I mean? Like it, like what our methods are, they work. Um, I've had experiences like this, like you, you, Basically, it's not necessarily removing humility, right? But it's removing the idea that like you could still there's still more to learn, yeah. Mm. Yes. And so I just think I, the whole reason I bring this up is because for me, letting go of control is essentially letting go and saying like I'm going to let a little bit of the unknown be a part of their progression. Like I'm not going to try to control every aspect and assume that I know everything that's best. But for me and maybe other people out there, this is really hard because we want to control every aspect of it because if we're not in control, then we're literally just trusting that it'll work out, right? And I have a certain, you know, I have my religious convictions about how we fix that pro- or what sorry, how we how that perspective works. But I'm sure. kind of curious for you. I mean, you were talking about that it's terrifying, but like, do you see, essentially, I guess the question is, do you see the same level of progress or more or less having let go of the reins versus when you felt like you were more pushing them? Or like, what do you, what have you noticed the differences to be? That's a good question. I think, can I break it up into two? Like, Do, um, do whatever you want, man. Musically, uh, maybe I'll talk musically and then academically slash as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, musically, when I... There's a moment like in the prep for rehearsals, you know, um, once we get close, I start to get quiet. Um, And when I get quiet, they get scared because I normally like, you know, our job is to mostly point out the negative and encourage and grow, you know, like you miss bar one, but you're an awesome person, like that sort of thing. I get quiet and um, I just focus on seeing if they can catch the things that I want to say if we do it again. So, like, they'll do a run, and, like, it will be really lights out. I'm like, I think Taiwan should do this, and over there, I think you should do that. I'm like, let's do it one more time, guys. Or I might say, like, what do you think? And if they say what I want them to say, then I know that I'm kind of doing the right things. But I think I've noticed this uh, musically when I let go and do what I just said. The When they're on point, like, focused and everything in their life is good and they're able to play, it's like some of the best music making I've ever heard. Like, even from the freshmen, when they are allowed to feel safe and secure and know that I pushed them, I got their back, but I'm gone now. Like, I'm not on stage with you. I'm not in the rehearsal hall anymore. I'm quiet and I'm watching. When they're on like that, um, I think it's way better. But I'm just now that you mentioned that, have started doing that probably before the pandemic, maybe a year. Um, because, you know, you want everything to be great because you want them to have the experience that you want them to have instead of the experience that they're going to have, you know, or deserve to have. And so, yeah, so I guess as players, let me recap, it's better when I release as long as I put the blocks in, you know, because then next year the blocks are already set so I can be quiet earlier, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then as a uh, as a uh, person and as a student, I found that they need more encouragement. And I think the reason is, is uh, I'm going to be honest, I think students, one, have a lot of distractions. We all do. Let me just say, not students. Everyone has more distractions in the last two, three years. But as a university student, as a music education major, um, they are burnt out. 
Like they are, they are working all the time. And yes, they should follow all the protocols that I put in place and say, schedule here, schedule time here, do this, do this. But let's be honest, they're 17, 18 years old. They're not going to do that right away. They have to believe in it, fail first and come into it. So I think the more encouragement I do, the better. But I do think that they learn quicker. And I'll say this at the end, when I let go, because they fail hard, like that, like to the point to where they might not graduate or they might have to repeat a class or they missed a rehearsal because they didn't put in their phone a reminder like I told them to, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess if I, in a roundabout way for both of them, uh, I think it's better if I let go, but as long as I put the blocks in. So when they fail, they don't go, I'm a crap person. They go, I didn't write this down. How simple is that? You know, like just write it down, but you need to fail to get there. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff you were saying made me think of this idea that, um, let's see if I can even like formulate this thought. Um, sometimes I have questions like preloaded, ready to go as I'm doing it, but this one I'm going to be formulating on the spot. So you're yeah, talking about that uh, performance-wise, they and they need more encouragement. They're burned out. Oh, I I remember. So, do you think it's possible that it's one of two things? Either they are being asked a reasonable amount and they need to rise to the occasion. Or depending on where they are, who they are, their ability level, they're being asked too much, depending on what, you know, like at the university I taught at for a few years, Samford, they just didn't have a lot of students, right? They had a few trumpet players. And so they were asking this one trumpet player to do everything because they needed that, right? So they're asking, in my opinion, that trumpet player to do too much based on need in that particular instance. And... um so I'm kind of curious what your perspective is on that because you just have so much more of a perspective than I do. Do you think it's a function of the of like basically they're just being asked to do too much mm. in terms of ensembles and everything that they're asking them to do? Or is it like this is what it is? Like you're asking them to rise to the occasion of what the expectation is for this kind of life, basically. Um, that That's a good one. Um, I think it's the second one. I think that I... And I say this with all respect and I'll back it up, but as any of my students listening, I do believe you're busy, but I do think it's a matter of not believing one in themselves and not trusting fully their professor um, to help. Like if they actually, like their first lesson with me, we sit down with a calendar, I show them how I block off every hour of the day to where you can practice two hours a day as a freshman and you'll be successful, you know? And if not, we can have wiggle room and you have playtime, you have games, you have, you know, all that stuff. I think it's a matter of rising to the occasion, but I think it's also because of their background and where they come from. So for me, speaking specifically, the idea of taking out loans is not a situation that happens for 95% of the students here. Whereas if they were and didn't work a 20 to 40 hour a week job, they would be able to handle it. But because of the mindset of the families, and I'm sorry if anyone's listening, but like because of the mindset of the families and the fear of loans, whatever that is, the students are suffering and not getting what they need. And I, I, I'm at least at my university, in my studio, the ones that take out loans are successful. The ones that don't take out loans 
um, are will be successful, but they will have very trying times. Like the first couple of years are going to be absolutely insane because they, they have to figure out how to make sure they get to Brahms and work their 40 hours and also practice for ensemble and rehearsals and stuff like that. They figure it out and they do well. But man, the first two years, maybe three years is terrible. So, yeah, I. I had loans. I don't. I don't. I don't understand that experience, right? Like exactly. I just, we just, yep. I just took out loans, and everything was generally geared towards, um, you know, to be. It's an interesting point too, because do you find that? I mean, this is just your opinion, of course, but do you find that people sort of appreciate it equally versus someone who has loans saying like, this is not, a, you know, I have all this time and I'm not paying for it versus somebody who's working a 40 hour a week job so mm -hmm. they can do this thing. Like, do you think there's, mm -hmm. I don't, maybe appreciates the wrong word, but I think you know what I'm asking. Like there's yeah, yeah, there yeah. a different re relationship with the opportunity that's present. Yes, I, I, I definitely do. And I, I think, to be honest, I, I think um, there might be some jealousy there um, and there might be some, you know, some, animosity between the two but i think it's more of the ones that finally get their situation together meaning their scheduling and, and their workload if they're not taking loans i think they have a higher respect level um but sometimes it gets to the point to where like they'll snap on somebody that might have the loans or might be doing better because they think like they're not pulling their weight as hard because they just work 40 hours now they're at a six hour dress you know like like that sort of thing so I think it's a little combination of both. I think the ones that have the time are actually getting better. And I do I do mean that. And getting better as in like accomplishing the goals we set together quicker. Um, but I do think at a certain point uh, there is some jealousy there. And I think once they get things figured out because they feel empowered that their money, their workload, their blood, sweat, and tears got this degree, I think that means more yeah. um, to them. I just think it's an interesting part of the conversation, you know, where this idea that you you want to, I mean, from my perspective, there have been times where I've I've seen somebody who maybe doesn't have a lot of means, and I've wanted the I've wanted to um, help, you know, you want to do some free lessons or this or that and stuff like that, and some people I think will very much appreciate that, and then I think some people won't like understand what you're offering them. Yeah. This was me. Basically, this is me. I didn't necessarily understand what my education offered me. I worked hard and I practiced a ton and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not sure. And in many ways, I take total advantage of my education. And then in many ways, I just wasted a ton of time. You know what I mean? Like, sure, and, sure. like there's other things I could have been learning, but I just was like trumpet and that's it. Sure, and so yeah. I think to some extent, I didn't understand and appreciate what it was because I wasn't working for it. And now... <laughs> I'm quote paying for it, right? I have this like yeah. eighty thousand dollar burden that doesn't seem to go. Somehow it seems to get higher every single year. <laughs> I got you. So anyway, I just was curious what your perspective with that was. Oh um, yeah. Do you want to? I think we should sort of shift into. I didn't realize we've been going like this has been flying by, dude. This oh snap! Been, it's yeah. been like an hour. This is <laughs> no great. Idea. Um, I'm curious if you want to kind of dig into some of the stuff we talked about previously. Um, yeah, yes, do it. For me to try to summarize it to some degree, from what I remember, uh, we were basically just talking about when we want to encourage our students to try to remove their identity. Uh, as a musician saying that I have more worth than just the value I provide as a musician. There's more to me. Uh, you had asked, you know, what, like, what, at least to my opinion, what do I think we can do? I said, number one, like, 
university professors or people who are in positions of authority should have or need to do this kind of work too. It's very difficult to tell somebody else to disassociate their identity from what they do when you also believe the same exact thing and sure. the value of why that's important. And then number two, rather than trying to, like like you've, we've even talked about this, but trying to instead of trying to stop people from from going through the hard times of dealing with this kind of thing, rather encouraging and supporting them to be able to walk through this thing so that when they sort of make it through this period of suffering or adversity, like they're stronger as a result of it and they and they they own that versus again, like somebody swooping in and just making it easier that doesn't I in my opinion land the same way. If I remember yeah. right, that's a, a lot of sort of the crux of it. So I'm kind of curious what you took away from this. And then you were saying it's even going to kind of work its way into some of your curriculum. I'm just curious if you kind of want to open up about what your thoughts were, how it kind of manifests and where you want to take it. Yeah, I think when I start talking, it might go some different directions. So make sure to stop me and redirect if I change. So our conversation was great because uh, not very often do we get a chance to talk, at least as university professors, as like, about the real issues um, that are going on, not with numbers and stuff like that, but with like morale and mindset. Um, and for me, I all what I've learned is, actually from talking to you is that my mindset is not, and nor should it be, the same as my students. Like, and what I mean by that is this: Yes, I want them to be great players and great people, but my mindset has always been get them to this level as players. They need to have this many videos and need to go over to this school and they got to have a music performing gig um, as well as teaching. That way they'll be successful and everything will be okay. That is completely false. Um, and I think for me, what I remember from our conversation and things that I, I'm implementing actually is that uh, I'm trying to really hear my students when they talk. Now, I do think students bend the truth because we all bend the truth. And sometimes we look at the negative more than the positive. So I say that first, but when they talk to me, at least over the last seven months, I really watch them. Um, and as they say things like, man, today was just like really bad. Like I feel really bad. And I watch their body language and the way they move and are their shoulders actually up still when they talk or they, like maybe they're not telling the truth or maybe they're relaxed or, you know, I'm watching their body language when they talk to me. And and as the weeks go on, if the body language, language remains the same and the tone remains the same, I... I start to realize that maybe I can step in and we take a break from playing and we watch a Brene Brown video or um, we talk we talk through and make lists about fun things that we want to do and and how often it's been or how long it's been since we've done anything fun, you know, like that sort of thing. So uh, I don't remember the specific questions you asked, sorry, but I think, you know, that's that's something I'm starting to really work on. And I've always, as an only child, watched people. Now, that sounds super creepy, but like I, I've always just people watched because um, I love it. Like I like sitting on a park bench and watching people interact. Um, I like, uh, you know, <laughs> mindless TV, like Nip Tuck or like soap operas and stuff like that. Um, and I say mindless, I'm sure people love it, but. I, I like that kind of stuff because you get to see people and, and actually these are people that they act like this. And so when I, I've realized that now I'm watching my students and I think it's really starting to help. And I'm not just looking at them like, oh, you didn't get measure seven to eight down. 
Um, is it because you didn't do what I asked? Like, did you not schedule? Or is it because you did what I asked, but you're so mentally burnt that doing 17 measures is actually impossible this week? But it will happen if you back off, Tommy, and leave them alone for a week. You know, like, let's have a coffee lesson. I always saw that as a sign of weakness, um, and that's been drilled into me. Like, every every semester we have a coffee lesson, you can take it at any time you want. Well, that's turned into, like, don't take that lesson unless you want to lecture from Dobbs over the last couple of years. And that's the opposite of what mm-hmm. it should be. You know, like, Jesus Christ, like, what have I done, you know, <laughs> yeah, to a certain yeah. extent? And, like, I can point to one student in particular where I think I had a hand in their turning away from music. This was early on. And it's because I, I saw the raw talent and I pushed them too hard um, to do this competition and that competition and and this thing. And they, they did well, but man, did it take a mental like toll. And now we're good friends and they're doing great. And um, they would never admit to that, but I'm saying that's what happened. And so um, not that I'm, I make it sound like I'm pushing kids away from music, but at the same time, I think uh, because of our conversation and just working on myself in general, I'm trying to actually when I open my mouth um, to say the things that I'm working on too. Like, have I read the right books? Have I done the personal study, the meditation before I say, hey, you need to sit down, let's close our eyes and meditate. What the heck does that mean, Tommy? Have you done it? You know, you're just gonna have these kids like lighten incense. Like, what are you doing? Um, And so, yeah, some things for the future. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, I'm revamping a lot. Um, I I don't believe in barrier systems. Um, That's just my personal take and that by that i mean like everyone has to play these 35 snare drum etudes before you go on to your second semester of sophomore year um, there's a lot of schools that do that and that i understand it but i don't believe in it um so basically uh coming up on this new year uh i think i need to get away from the standard instruments that we use all the time like for every audition whether that's orchestral or service band or graduate school there's three main categories it's mallet snare drum and timpani uh, more so mallet snare drum. And I focused on that because it's it works. You know, like you focus on this, the techniques that I teach go to tambourine and triangle and all that. Um, it crosses a board, but it also causes burnout because if you're like four years of marimba, like all the like high level marimba, it's a lot, you know, unless you're into it. And so incorporating things like um, book readings, uh, listening, a lot of TED Talks, and I sampled it over the last year. And the moments we had where I stopped and said, we're going to watch these two TED Talks back to back. We're not going to talk about it. I don't want like, unless you want to speak to me about it, we will. I just think I want to insert this knowledge into you. About a month later, I would get a message or like in a lesson, they'd be like, you know what? I wasn't about it. Like when you, when we watched this, uh, um, Simon Ted talk. Um, and he's just like, I forget his last name. Um, he's the guy that says like, start with why. Um, anyway, so, Mm -hmm. uh, but now they're like, it makes so much sense for my life. Thank you so much. And I was like, Oh my God. So like, I just need to get over instant gratification is really what I need to do and be like, I'm going to plant the seed. You might not be ready for it, but maybe in two years, four years, it'll click and maybe it'll change your life or maybe to stop you from doing this or maybe to stop you from doing that. I just, in my mind, I think I remember everything in my undergrad and my high school years as being instant. And I don't think it was that. Um, and if it was that, it's because I didn't know anything. Like I, I wasn't <laughs> exposed, you know, like, um, and so I need to, I, 
I'm working on delaying gratification. I'm working on inserting things that are not musical, that are very much important for creating the family vibe I said I was trying to create. Um, and then also just not, not forcefully putting my expectations on them to a point that causes them not to reach anything, you know? So. That's great, dude. Uh, I have a few tough questions if you're ready. Yeah, get it. When you say, let's just take one of those things. You said, I'm working on delayed gratification. What does that mean? Um, so basically, um, for example, uh, we read Chop Wood, Carry Water together um, in the fall uh, as a group. And we I took away what would normally be ensemble time to read that book with them. And we'd do three or four chapters and then we'd have an activity, right? Every time I did it, it was crickets. Like we would, I would say, all right, what'd you guys think about this? You know, um, when he actually got a chance to pull back the bow for the first time and like release it and it hit a target. Like, what'd you think about that? They're like, yeah, it's cool, bro. You know, or like, and I was just like, you ignorant. Like I was just like getting yeah. so angry at these kids and they'd be so quiet. And then, <laughs> and then I would watch them um, hanging out in the practice room. They were talking to each other about the book the whole time. It was me they were scared of. And so they were scared to say anything because they were afraid that they would look stupid in front of their teacher. And at some point I had created this environment. And so what I say that, I, all this to say, by the end of it, over the Christmas break, I would got a couple messages from students, especially the young ones, the freshmen. They were like, this has probably been the most influential class that I've ever had. And I really feel like I'm better at focusing and like understanding that today I'm good because of this. And I was just like rainfall. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and during the whole time, I was just like, yeah, why do you hate me? Like, why aren't you doing it? Like, why me, 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 me? I'm not getting the gratification I need from my lecture. You're not giving it to me. And so I need to say, first off, I'm learning that when I talk, it's not always going to be great. It's not always going to be epic like the soap operas that I watch, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and that the results will come if I do it with their best interest at heart and not my own. And that's hard for me to say because I always feel like I'm, I have their best interest at heart, but I'm realizing maybe selfishly somehow I don't, you know. So the next question then, that's a great answer because it's going to lead me right to the next question. All right. Which is, I totally agree with you, right? I totally agree that delayed gratification is essential because things for all, the most general way to say it is things need time to percolate, right? That's the most general way to say it. But in my opinion, in order to be able to not be stressed the whole time while you're waiting for this percolation to happen, we need some sort of reason in the short term. We do actually need some version of instant gratification. It just needs to not be whatever you just described, right? Because that was causing yeah. you frustration and or anger. So, <laughs> Because in my opinion, the instant gratification, it's just different. It's not that we don't have it. We just shift the focus of yeah, the yeah. instant gratification to something that will fill us and will allow us to stay patient. What is that for you? Uh, in a simple term, I think what it is, is because I am the person you just said, unfortunately, but checkoff lists. If I can look down 
at this piece of paper and see that every line is crossed. Now, this is a whole nother bag of worms that you could go down. If I could say today, I on my checkoff list is I'm going to have a studio class of my students on um, chop wood, carry water. We're going to talk about this. We're going to do this activity where you write down who you want to be. We're going to seal it up and we're going to open it up at the end of the semester. So I've delayed it for 16 weeks. Well, on my sheet, I could say that I did it and I can scratch through it. And the activity for me of scratching through the checkoff list and I'll post it up to remind me in 16 weeks that um, uh, I need to complete it. Uh, that actually does something for me for real. Um, and I found that if I can allow myself to take the simplicity of that, like literal this sound, like if I can take the simplicity of that sound and make it something where I can absorb it versus pushing the students further in the activity than what it actually is and hoping they're going to say something amazing, I think that it, it, it's better um, for me. And I'm starting to understand that sounds like we're trained this way in school, man. Like when you're from K through 12, a bell rings, you're done, you walk out. For me, my bell ringing is and I can move on. Um, that is actually as simple as it is happening. And I know people are like, that's BS. But it, like, really, that's I think that's the only thing that's helping me get through it. That's great. Yeah. What happens when you don't get everything checked off? Because yeah. a lot of people fall into that boat, right? And then this, yeah. I mean, we we can unpack this. But basically, the things that we would have to unpack then are, are there too many things on our checklist, right? And how do we manage what is an appropriate amount of things? Or I just have too many things on my checklist, but I'm okay with that. Like, which mm. one do you feel like you are? Are you okay if you don't check everything off? Or are you someone who has had to learn how to manage how many things are on your checklist? I'll say that I'm not okay with things not being checked off, but because of the people I'm surrounded by, like Jessica, my fiance, um, she's changed my whole life. Um, working with Karen um, has changed a lot of my perspective. Um, but I will say that I have always been the checker and deep rooted. I know where it comes from. I have an idea where it comes from, um, from my high school years and like my parents helping. I'm not blaming my parents, but my parents pushing me to succeed so I could go to college. You know, like that sort of thing. I know where it comes from um, and I understand it and appreciate it. But I think, um, I don't remember what the second thing you said was, but it's, I'm definitely working on the first one. Um, like checking things off uh, or being okay with not checking things off. Um, I personally do think 100% knowing my personality type that it's, I have too many things. I have too many things and I've normally wrapped myself around my close friends that are involved in the too many things with me. So then I get stressed out that I'm not going to complete and break a friendship um, in the process. So I think it's a combo. I'm learning how to fix the first and how to be okay when I go to sleep at night that I, I'm i okay that I have five things. It's just going to move up and I'll do them tomorrow. Um, but I also am figuring out personally that I have way too much and I did it to myself and I need to learn how to say no, which is against one of the rules that I put on my students, which is to always say yes to experiences. Um, I need to yeah. I have some more questions. Yeah, do it, man. Uh, there's two of them I have. 
one of them is how do you, what is your criteria for saying no? And then the other question would be, it's a question actually I've been asking myself recently is mm -hmm. who put the expectation of productivity on us? Like if I feel like I have to get a certain amount of things done and if I don't check off that whole list, I was unproductive. It is a black or a white. If everything yeah. is not checked off, I am unproductive. I don't quite feel this way, but I have had many conversations with my wife who feels exactly this way. Sure. Who put this expectation that that list of things determined productivity for that day? It's always ourself. I, I, it's, it's so interesting to think about it that way for me that no one has put this on you. And maybe some people have like a boss that's asking too much of them, right? Maybe some people are in situations where they, they actually like sort of don't have much of a choice. Um, but for many of us, we do. For many of us, we do have the choice and we load ourselves up because we want all these experiences. Yeah. But like then in my, uh, the, the, the logical question then becomes like, well, what are we serving, right? Like, is it for us to be able to be maximally productive and to be the people we need to be? Or is it to say that I have all these experiences, look at all the cool things I'm doing? <laughs> or is it to say like, you know, is it a financial incentive possibly to say like that will, you know, bring some more financial security? I mean, there's, it's a lot wrapped up in there, obviously. Absolutely. Um, but that is a question I've been asking myself. Who put the, like the expectations of productivity I have, who put those on me? And I'm kind of curious if you like have any thoughts about that. That maybe just yeah. that question, like what it would be like for you to unpack some of it. Yeah. So who put the things on me? Um, well, I think you nailed it. I did. Um, but I I will say, if we back up to where I come from, um, like the growing up in a sort of farmy sort of town, I didn't know any of this. So someone either exposed me to it um, or said, this is how you become successful. Um, and I know at least as a performer, all the flaws were always shown to me when I got to college, as they should. Like, um, And I spent so much time working on them and still do that you know, that checkoff list will be in my mind forever unless some kind of therapist can break that down. So I would say I put it on there. Like I put all of this on myself, but it's taking people around me to help break it down. But if I want to be real technical, um, I personally think the university system and standardized testing, um, let me rephrase, I think higher education and secondary education needs to be revamped in the way we define them um, and how we implement them. Because we say you have to pass this test or you will not go on and you're not smart and you'll be put in the dumb class. Let's not like you, whatever you want to call it to be PC or whatever, like that's what it is. Like that, that people will tell you that you're stupid if you're in that class. The teachers won't, but the students will. Um, and it doesn't matter. You'll fight so hard and give up eating and, and drinking and being a normal kid playing outside to pass these tests so you don't get called dumb. And that that's just how it is. That's never going to go away unless we stop it. And at the university level, we say 
oh, no, no, no. It's no longer sit down and learn from the masters or like learn from people that have experienced life. Some places, yes, sometimes, yes. It is a higher version, harder version of high school. It's you have to take these classes, pass this. If you don't do this, we'll take your money away. So don't take the money away. You're going to be working at Burger King and you're going to be completely effed. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And that's where we're at. And that is so bogus. And not everyone needs to go to college. Not everyone needs to do that. And it's not a sign of status just to have a piece of paper, but it is. It 100% is, and that is mind-blowing. And in my generation, I do not think it's going to change unless the young people or people like me and you like do something. I'm not saying we need to like picket and riot and like burn streets or whatever, but man, like have a conversation and say, do you really understand higher education? Are they really learning anything in that biology class about biology? Or are they actually just trying to study for the test so they f- don't fail so they can um, keep their scholarship? You know, I, I um, have this beautiful memory. Sorry to interrupt from no, when yeah. I was in a math class, my junior year, we were learning about like logarithms or something like that. <laughs> sure. And this student said, when am I ever going to use this? And the teacher said, well, you'll need it for your next test. <laughs> and there it I, is. You know, I've thought about this for so many years, thinking it's a hilarious story, right? Because he's yeah. right. You'll need it for your next test. But from when you frame it in this way, he's literally saying this is useless information except Absolutely. for this test that you're going to have here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I, I don't disagree with you. Our kids are in this uh, a style of – it's a private school with style of education called Waldorf education. Okay. And it is very different from, from I mean, you learn similar things, but their whole goal is to, A, protect a child's imagination because imagination leads to the ability to think critically, Absolutely. according to them. Uh, I'm not, I'm just repeating what they've told me. And then the Sounds second right. thing they do is they, they are so interested in trying to keep the curriculum where the child is developmentally. And so like the way they teach you how to read is they read to them for significantly longer than most schools do, right? Because, um, and when you're in school, let's say you're like a second grader who can read at a sixth grade level. The (laughs) The language that they use is you can decode words at a sixth grade level, but you can't transfer meaning. Like you can't understand a sixth grade, like what that story is trying to say. So they don't even try. They just read them. They continue to read them like, like very rich, uh, beautifully written stories. So into like third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, they're hearing like beautiful language. And then when they teach them how to read, I mean, they basically take stories that they know very, 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 very well. And then you read it with them and then they see the words and then they'll just be able to know what the words are because they know the word. And then they can start to associate. And it's very, 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 very weird. Because Waldorf kids won't start reading until like one to two years after most other kids start reading. But it literally is like like that. They go from I can't read to I can read just fine. Yeah. It's the freakiest thing in the world. But because the, the whole educational system is is based around the development of the child. Like they this guy Rudolf Steiner like built it around that, right? Mm. So like I'm not sure how possible it would be. <laughs> to completely reformat, but I totally agree that I think some of this, to to bring it all the way back to our conversation, I think the solution comes with people talking about it and people saying like, I can't change the whole system, but I can change what I do. 
I can maybe, you know, try to take what system exists and format it in a way that it appeases, you know, what the system is and what we need it to be, but acknowledges that everybody is in different developmental states, especially with something related to music, which is completely yeah. subjective and everybody's going to have different experiences. Exactly. No, and the beauty there in what you just said about your children is that someone decided that this is worth experimenting with and putting the time in just to see if it works. And I, I, I'm I, concerned, you know, I'm not trying to be, I don't know, like, I'm sure some of my friends listening be like, oh, you hippie and stuff like that. But <laughs> like, if you really think about it, like, I, everything seems to be moved by money or power, you know? Um, sorry, my dogs are going crazy. It's all good. But like, man, I if we could eliminate those two things, which I know can't probably happen but if we could eliminate the fear of funding being taken away from um people and like maybe paying more for teachers to come in and take extra classes to be enlightened or like to maybe even just maybe even don't work them all day long so they can be excited when kids walk in you know what i mean mm -hmm. like if we could revamp just a couple little things a couple little things i think the experience of an actual education would be cool and it wouldn't just be like oh we have to get to this grade and i'm sure some people are like well we have to be able to assess it assess it Maybe just assess it once every four years or something, not every week or every day, um, because some people don't learn that quick. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, we talked on my podcast about my my practice organizational systems. For my own yep. fundamentals, at the level that I am at, I'm generally assessing my fundamental growth on a month-by-month -month basis. That's awesome. Because I have to, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to yeah. see day-by-day -day progress, generally speaking. I'm not going to even see really probably week-by-week -week progress. Exactly. And so I'm I'm committing to a, a whole month of practicing before I ask myself, am I better? And I think yeah. for most people, if they don't want to go month-by-month, week-by-week is minimum. Yeah. Right? To be able to say, I'm going to reserve judgment on how I'm doing until next week. And then I'm going to see, so that you can actually just practice. <laughs> yeah, you know. But name, but but name another. Not to interject, but name another system in our lives that allows for that, that allows you to actually wait. Everything is instant. Well, down just, to the yeah. food we, eat, you know, like in the phones, everything is instant. Sort um, of right. Like working yeah. out would be where I got this from, right? You have workout programs that are three months long, and you're supposed to then test at the end of that three months. So you're doing a whole bunch of work, not knowing what the end result will be. And the thing is, is it's not the hard part about it. Is it takes discipline. That's oh, the sure. hard part about it, right? That's the difference between instant and delayed gratification is we're asking ourselves to be disciplined and holding like holding back our emotion, reserving judgment about whether something was worth it or not. Not even if it was effective, but it, if it was worth it for us to spend our time yes. doing it. Like mm -hmm. that's really what we're talking about, right? Like <laughs> exactly. when you're frustrated yeah. with your students, they don't give you immediate feedback about chop wood, carry water. What you're saying in essence, and I, gosh, I've struggled with this so much is you're essentially saying that was not worth my time because I did not get the result I wanted. And what's crazy, what you just said is something I, I am slowly figuring out and needed to just hear that because I probably look like that. So they're not <laughs> answering anything because I look like I'm like, what's wrong with you kids? Yeah. You know, and there's nothing wrong. They just don't want to talk about it right now. They might even have, it might have changed their life. But because I'm like, you know, <laughs> the kids are like, what the F teach? You know, like, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, in my struggles have been like, 
number, right? So then if we bring it back to the university thing, like what justifies, how do we, how do we gauge? How do we assess? For me, like generally speaking, for people who are doing social media type stuff, a podcast or a YouTube channel or whatever, growth is what does it. It's yeah. really hard to gauge based on feedback when you don't get any, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. you start to look for other metrics. And so you just basically, one of the hard parts about doing what I do is I feel like I have to recognize what this true statement. The numbers don't matter, people do. Here's another true statement. People matter, but I don't know who is being impacted. So I have to move forward with the assumption to some degree that people are seeing impact or feeling yeah. impact. Or else how would I make it how would I move forward? How would you do it? If you know that to be true, how would you move forward without some assumption that your work has some effect? Exactly. I don't, I don't know. I mean, everything you do, the way you open your mouth or your body language would all be negative. Like it would you would literally be pushing people away from the goal thus confirming what you thought was happening the whole time. So you're like, I am right. I am God. You know, like, and no one's listening to God right now. You know, like that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I I just, how do we as a people, especially in the arts, how do we talk to admin? How do we talk to families? How do we talk to students and tell them that in four years, I can, sh I can promise you that I'll do everything that I can to make sure your student is enlightened and a better person and also a better player. Um, but I will not test them. You're not going to get report cards. Um, they're, they're probably not going to be happy all the time. Like if you, like there's so many right. negatives, like what do we do? Um, because in their mind, you're like, if they're not happy, how are they going to get a job? Or like, everything's about job. Like when they get out of here, I had a, had a family member say, how can you guarantee my student will be a band director? I was like, I can't. Yeah. I cannot do that. They're like, well, I think we're going to have to do the medical route. And I was like, what? Like, there's no guarantee you're going to be a doctor either. You know, like, I don't know. Dude, you're... So... Yeah. I mean, there's more of a guarantee, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. There's more of a guarantee with the doctor. And I think that's part of our problem in music is we can't guarantee anybody anything. Because there are so many people who want to do what everybody else wants to do. And right. I would say these days, the quality is high across yes. the board. Absolutely. You know? Uh, and definitely from when I was in school. Yeah. Like, so I, I think, I mean, one of the overall questions, I'm kind of curious what your perspective is on this, actually. One of the questions I've been asking, let's say for more than a year, and I don't have an answer to it yet. Nice. I'm going to try to, I haven't even found a good way to ask the question yet, but essentially, is it possible to highly achieve in anything without selling yourself totally to that thing? Does that question make sense? As opposed yeah. to you have a process that you trust, that you are not worried about, that will you will see progress through this process, but you are not totally sold out to this thing. And what you're putting Instead of selling out, what you're doing is saying, instead of that result, I'm going to follow this process and try to reach my maximum potential. Along mm -hmm. the way, somewhere along that, I will be ready to win a job and then I will win the right job for me. Is it possible to win a job with that perspective? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, do I you think believe so. that? I, I do believe that. I, I will say this, though. I don't think it's possible... I do believe that if we change things, that is possible. I don't think people will even get invited for certain things if they don't fall into line and check off the boxes that we set in place. Because uh, we can even just pick a level, whether it's government or the school or family, there's going to be a barrier where someone has to see 
growth and potential at a certain level. Like, okay, um, before you can come audition for a principal of um, Chicago, like you have to be a principal somewhere else or you have to have studied with these people or you have to do, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. And it doesn't matter if you spent seven years on a mountain playing trumpet with like the god of trumpet. If you haven't checked off the boxes in our system that we've created, you can't succeed or I, it's going to be hard. It's going to be so hard because you have to buy in at some point. Like, yes, you maybe not have gone to these conferences or maybe you start a podcast or maybe you start playing on YouTube or maybe you do gigs like and try to get some some cred around town. But at some point, you will sell yourself as a product and buy into the situation or else I, I don't think you can make it now. Yeah. I, I just don't. Yeah. I To me, like what you said... It's it's basically like the people who are in charge are, are the ones deciding, right? So as a parent, this the, the the easiest way I can sort of describe my point of view is as a parent. Like as a parent, I understand certain things based on my life experience, and it is hmm. my responsibility to tell my children that to not necessarily <laughs> say whatever you want it to be is what it is. When you're eight years old, you know nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just don't know anything. And yeah. so it's a respect, it's a parent's responsibility, in my opinion, to say, here's what's up. This is how we treat people. This is how you act. This is how you say please. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. This is how you choose. You know, like there's all sorts of things that we would try to impart up to our children and to say, like, this is how we should view, this is our perspective. These are the things that we should value, right? And I would say the same exists to some degree. I'm not a university professor. I'm not really a teacher. I have my practice coaching, which I do try to share these perspectives. But essentially, I think it's on us to basically say like, you may have your ideas about what things are, but let me tell you what's true, right? Yeah. Like you may no, think I... that your whole entire identity is wrapped up in, in what you do, but let me tell you what's, re like, let me tell you what's different. Let me tell you yeah. what I believe to be true. It's not true. You have all these other things that matter about you, right? To, to try to instill the perspective of like, we're not just here. I, I'm gone a bit of a rant here, but we're not just no, here to like say, listen, I'm just going to like give you what whatever you think you want, that's what I'm going to give you. Like there's a lot of value in that, especially with a motivated kid. Yeah. But like making sure, especially if we've done some of that work, that we can pick up some of the fringes com conversations as well to make sure that not it's not to me it's not even about burnout. To me, it's about perspective. To me, it's about do you how do you see yourself within the activity that you're doing? Are you completely hmm. consumed by it? Because if so, we should have a talk. We should have a coffee lesson. I'm not, you know, it's much more complicated than that. And it's going to be individual case by case basis, depending on the teacher, depending on the student. Um, but I just think going back to the parent example, like if I said to my kid, like you're not defined by what you do, it's okay to fail. And they were like, no, it's not. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, like you've made this decision and your life will probably be harder as a result of this, but that's your yeah. choice. But it's my responsibility to try to impart what, like how to this, what this perspective that might hopefully lead them to more peace and joy in their life. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I'm I'm curious though, because I, I agree. I like I like what you said. I just what I'm coming up against is twofold, I think. One is how do you show them that it's okay to go on this path and not have to check all these boxes? And how do you prove that? 
how do you prove to the parents and to the admin that that's the case? Or do you need to? That's the flip side. I don't think you need to. I mean, it's kind of, we flipped our podcast around again. Um, <laughs> I don't think you need to. I just think you need to change the parameters of what success looks like. Mm. Right? So the parameters- How do you show that? Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I think it's all anecdotal. Okay. I think it's perceived. I think, do you perceive? Look at yourself, right? Look at yourself. Like, look at the growth that's happened in your life and ask yourself, how do you prove that it was worth it? Like, the only oh, okay. way you can prove it is that you can tell somebody else, I have more peace right now than I did, and it's possibly as a result of these things. Or I have, a, I have you know, a better relationship with myself in terms of mental health than I did before. Like, how okay. do we prove anything, you know? That's true. I guess the, uh, so that's the that's a twofold. I was like, as I say that my students need proof, and I think some of them do, but it's like, is it my responsibility to provide the factual proof, or is it my responsibility to say, here's my story as a lived person, like, this is what happened to me, bye. And then, like, they fail on their own? Or, like, what do you do? I, I mean, number two is the answer, right? You can only, in my opinion, you can only give your experience. I think this is why I'm so interested in like practice systems because having the ability to take somebody else's lived experience and in some fashion apply it versus mm -hmm. just like, what do I do with this random bit of information? Which is why, you know, when you work with a, like a therapist or a coach, they have like tools that are going to help you be able to, like, when you have this struggle, try this, think this, do this, right? It gives you yeah. a little bit of a way to experience some of those things. But ultimately, you have to fail. You, we already talked about that, right? And that's like, true. Yeah. But we're letting people fail as like people, and that's hard to do. Like, you don't want your children to fail. You don't want your children to feel bad. But sometimes my children need to like not be happy, so that we can instill a greater perspective, delayed gratification, right? Yeah. Now we're coming back. <laughs> yeah. Coming exactly. Back. So that's just my perspective on it. You know, I, I think it, it it is the responsibility of the authority to to you know to assess what the student wants to assess what the you know child or whatever wants what is there like you can't just say like i'm going to pick everything for you like obviously like they have a say in it but then to try to to say like as an adult as someone who knows stuff who has experienced life i'm going to impart some of my perspective yeah yeah and i will hope that you will take it and if you have questions about what that looks like we can talk about that in your own life but ultimately yeah. like i'm doing this because I want you to be able to have a better relationship with your instrument, a better relationship with yourself. But if you're one of those people that's going to do it the hard way, I'll be here for you then too. <laughs> yeah, it, that's uh, as you're saying that, I'm seeing myself like in my mind, the flashes of me going through and teaching my students at various points of their, their time here. And I'm realizing a lot of it, uh, that's something I have to work on. Because for me, I want the checkoff list. You tell me to do it, I'll do it. doesn't matter if it takes 25 hours. But that's not everybody. So now I'm coming back to the to the very beginning. That is a struggle for me. Um, like I, I would prefer everyone in my studio to say, here's the list, check off the list, and I promise you a job, at least 90% towards it. Um, instead, I need to delay gratification, insert the knowledge, which I think is happening, and then shut it down. Um, yeah, I mean, you described it already, you know, trying to listen to what they need, trying to assess what that is, but on a, like a human level, right? You were talking yeah. about that. Yeah. No, dude, I think it's, I mean, again, this is just my perspective. I'm not trying oh, to, yeah. 
I'm not trying to say I, I, I understand or know everything by any means. And I'm not trying to say also I know what it's like for every single university professor and this is going to fix all of everybody's problems. <laughs> like I'm not, that, I'm not that smart or that informed about the struggles. But based on like what we've talked about, like I'm encouraged and inspired that you're willing to like self-reflect and, and even acknowledge things like you were saying. Uh, that you may have possibly been a part of a student leaving. Like, that's hard to oh, yeah. admit, you know? Um, and the fact that you're willing to admit that in the framework of I'm trying to, you know, do better because I recognize that it's a partnership, I just think it's awesome, dude. I, I, it's a very inspiring to me. And I think you I, should not stop ever. Just <laughs> keep going. I'm trying, man. I, it's, uh, it's hard for me because I... I where I come from, uh, you, you take care of people, you know, like that's one thing my, my parents have shown me. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you look like. If you knock on my door, your family now, you know, and I'm trying to insert that here, but I'm realizing that I'm getting in the way that I need to do the more reflecting instead of telling them to reflect because they're, they're who they are. They came to me who they are. They didn't come to me as small Tommies or, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah, the conversation like this helps. I think it'd be cool to hear this more um, and not to plug it, but something like what you were getting ready to do, um, your uh, the conference that you were preparing and yeah. stuff like that. I, I think that that, I don't mean to bring up bad, bad news or anything. I just, good. I think, I think something like that um, for people like me, and there's so many like me that are in their early years of teaching that come from schools where you like, you have to check off the stuff or else I wouldn't be here. Um, I know that for sure. Um, and now it's time, you know, year five, year seven, just like, hey, does this stuff actually matter? Or what are we actually teaching here? You know, like we don't need more people to go to conservatories to go to conservatories. Um, you know, like we need people to emote and shape, you know, like Jacob Collier or something. Like we need people like that. And he didn't, I assume, did not go and do all the checkoff lists. He was just like, I'll do this, you know? Yeah. So anyway. God, yeah, I feel like we could talk forever. <laughs> yeah. It's really, That's, yeah, for real. It's really chill to talk to you. Um, we should probably cap it and we'll just come back for another oh, one yeah. someday. <laughs> it sounds good. Um, where can people find you, man? If people want to kind of check out stuff that you're doing at Fort Smith, they want to check out your podcast, they just want to reach out and say they appreciated the words you were saying, how can people find you? For sure. Well, I'm on social media. Just look uh, Tommy Dobbs. Um, I don't think there's many Dobbs on there. But anyway, so Tommy Dobbs, uh, my website, Tommy Dobbs Percussion, has uh, mostly up-to-date stuff. Um, my students and I created a website. It's uafspercussion.com. You can see all the cool things we're doing there, download some samples from the upcoming album and and things like that. Um, I'm in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and if you're ever around, we have the best coffee in the world, and we have some great craft beer, so stop by and let's have a beer and talk, you know? Do you have a podcast? Oh, my podcast. <laughs> I, I actually forget about this all the time. So I created a podcast uh, over the pandemic. It's called the Percussion Pedagogy Podcast. Um, it's designed to help people like myself, um, band directors, orchestra directors, professionals, and young people. Um, the idea is that either you'll learn something about um, – someone that you should know about that I think is cool and that has a cool life story or you'll learn something like hey this is how you tie cymbal straps in 15 minutes on your way to work um, it turned in it started as a 15 20 minute podcast now the episodes are a little longer um, like, and like one that we're having right now I've chopped it up a couple times and I think it's great because um, I'm learning as the podcast goes on and I think people are having a good time so or I'm having a good time if people are listening that's cool too um, so anyway that's me 
And where can people find your podcast? Daggummit. No. <laughs> I think I'm terrible at marketing myself. So uh, my podcast is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, and I think all streaming sites. Um, you can go to Buzzsprout if you want and look that up there, but it's on Apple Podcasts. And if you check it out and you like it, or if you have an idea of someone I should be talking to or some topic, please shoot me a message. Like I said, Tommy Dobbs Percussion has my email on it, and um, I think my phone number too. So. And yeah. then are you on social media for the podcast? Oh, dadgummit. <laughs> so the podcast uh, is on Instagram only. Uh, it's the Percussion Pedagogy Podcast. Um, and I've, I've, I post about it on my personal Facebook page as well. Um, so just head to Instagram, the Percussion Pedagogy Podcast. Um, like I said, shoot me a message. There you go. Uh, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on that's not spit.com. Also, that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings whatsoever, I'd appreciate it if you'd give a rating and a review on iTunes. And do not forget to share the. Uh. <laughs> and do not forget to share it on social media. Tommy, you're the best, man. I appreciate you giving me some of your time, bro. No, man. Thank you for talking. This is like, I always. At least the last time we did this, I leave inspired, man. You're this is great. Thank ah, you for having the me. The feeling is very mutual. I appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Hello, 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 that's not spit fans, and welcome to the secret message of today's episode. Today, I want to address an important distinction for those of us who maybe feel like we're a bit behind in our practice, and that is that we play our instrument. We don't work it. Much like play when we're young, practicing our craft has no endpoint, and it's up to us to remember to enjoy our time with our instrument. So stay fun out there, and remember, Shh, don't tell Ryan. <laughs>